Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the morning report section of the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast from the Yale Neurology Program at the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Jeff Dewey. I'm one of the associate program directors and an assistant professor of neurology here with a specialty in neuromuscular medicine. Today, we're joined by Dr. Norman Werdiger. He's an associate clinical professor of neurology at the Yale School of Medicine and assistant chief of neurology at Yale New Haven Hospital. We also have back with us some regular participants, uh, Dr. Chris Trainer and Dr. Lindsay McAlpine. Chris is a PGY4 resident in our program, and Lindsay is a PGY3 resident in our program. So we have a great case today. Uh, Dr. Trainer, uh, why don't you take us ahead? Awesome. So today we have a 67-year-old female who presented for about two weeks of uh, progressive lower extremity numbness. So uh, basically her history is that she reported that about two and a half weeks ago, two, two and a half weeks ago, she started feeling some numbness that developed in her feet. She had actually had this before years ago associated with some of her chronic illnesses, which we can talk about in a few minutes. She didn't really think too much of it. But then notice that over the period of about a week or so, it went from being just numbness and tingling in her feet to kind of ascending towards her knees. And then by the time she presented to the emergency room, that ascension had reached kind of her mid-thighs. The other thing that she noticed was uh, about 24 hours before she uh, got to the emergency room, she was having difficulty buttoning her shirt, as well as using a remote control to Okay. Considerations at, at this point, uh, we don't have that much to work on, but uh, it's important to note the temporal uh, way that this evolved and that it was acute, uh, rather acute in onset to subacute in onset, that it was progressive over a period of uh, two weeks or so, and that although it started in the legs, there also seems to be some involvement in the arms. In the legs, it seems like there's sensory involvement. You haven't given us enough information to know whether there's motor or autonomic involvement to help us localize in the peripheral nervous system versus the spinal cord. Uh, and in the arms, it sounds like it's, it's motor. It's hard to know if it's coordination or if it's weakness, but we don't have an idea of, of uh, sensory involvement. Uh, there also doesn't appear to be any pain, and we don't know how much this is impacting her, her daily activities, which would give us some idea of the severity or intensity. What do you think of, Lindsay, when, when you think of this type of acute subacute onset of neurologic uh, disorder? What kind of categories of uh, neurological disorders comes to mind? Neuromuscular. So, and depending on the time course and the distribution of the sensory and motor symptoms, there's a, a long differential. Correct. So if you think about neuromuscular disorders, what kind of uh, pathophysiology would, would you think about? Uh, so uh, for instance, is, uh, this wouldn't be a muscular dystrophy. What kind of disorders uh, would come to mind with this kind of presentation? So neuromuscular junction disorders. Those tend to be more episodic, like myasthenia gravis. It's not uh, kind of more constant progressive, of course, but it's, it's episodic with, with fatigue. Right. In the, that general vein, I think you're talking about immune-mediated or inflammatory mm -hmm. uh, types of disorders. It's unclear if it's affecting um, at this point the peripheral nerves or the neuromuscular junction or the spinal cord. I think uh, because sensation <laughs> is involved early, a pure muscular disorder is, is less likely. Dr. Gordier, what else would you keep on your differential for a presentation like this? So you, you always have to think about, in this type of presentation, a neoplasm 
or complications in neoplasm or uh, compressive spinal cord types of uh, injuries with this ascending type of process. Uh, don't forget that because of the lamination of the uh, corticospinal tracts and the th uh, spinal thalamic tracts and the spinal cord, when you have compression, uh, external compression on the uh, spinal cord, the lateral tracts will be affected earlier than the medial tracts, so the legs, even though you may have a cervical lesion, uh, may be affected uh, sooner than the arms, and as the compression increases, you may get this ascending type of pattern. So you would be concerned about compressive myelopathy, uh, for instance, either due to tumor or infection that's reached a certain critical size. This doesn't really sound like a toxic metabolic uh, type of picture, although it can have certain toxins or metabolic problems that do uh, progress uh, somewhat uh, rapidly, although they tend to be uh, much more slow. Vascular uh, disorders can sometimes present in this type of fashion. For instance, if you had a uh, dural AV fistula uh, affecting uh, the cord, uh, it can present like this type of acute or subacute uh, mass solution. But I think an inflammatory, and then depending on the age group, uh, this, this lady's a little bit older, but the demyelinating disease. Uh, might also be in the differential diagnosis. And to the extent that transverse myelitis could be a demyelinating uh, syndrome as well as autoimmune syndrome, you'd have to consider it. I think the reflexes are going to be very important, so I'd love to hear the exam. Right. So our exam will be important. Also important will be some uh, critical factors of the history, like I assume there was no trauma, whether or not there was an antecedent infection or other uh, possible provocative event like a vaccine for instance. So Chris, why don't you go ahead and give us some more information? That was the history she reported. Her husband arrived at the bedside shortly after and added a few, I think, important pieces uh, to the story. So he had noticed just a couple of additional things. Into the, one was that when she was rising from a seat, particular while watching TV, he noticed that she kind of like stuttered a little bit, like it took her a little bit longer than was typical. She was fairly spry. And so he was a little concerned that, you know, she was having to kind of push up from the chair and that it was taking her longer to to stand up. She really didn't make too much of that. She thought it was mostly related to the tingling, but she, uh, he had noticed that. And then he also said that he felt that her voice was actually a little bit hoarse um, and that that had been going on for a couple of days prior to the presentation. She denied any uh, difficulty swallowing. She had been eating normally without any difficulties. As far as other antecedent history, she did have a diarrheal illness about a month before the onset of the symptoms. So that would be about six weeks before all of this started. During that illness, she did have a slight low-grade fever at 99.5, but it resolved after about 24 hours, so she wasn't sure what to make of that. Otherwise, she denied any difficulty with her vision, double vision, no imbalance or discoordination. She had no pain. She had no recent trauma. She denied shortness of breath, and otherwise, medically, her review of systems was negative. As far as other kind of important history, as far as her as a patient, so she does have a history of focal segmental glomerulonephritis, for which she had a renal transplant about a year and a half ago. Um, and she was on a medication called Belatisep for her immunosuppression because she was actually unable to tolerate uh, tacrolimus or mycophenolate due to side effects. And then she also has a history of hyperlipidemia for which she was taking a statin. She has hypothyroidism for which she was taking a Synthroid. And then just a history of anxiety, particularly surrounding health issues. But that's kind of her, the totality of her medical history. Is there anything else you would like to know, Lindsay? No, I think that helpful extra information because it frames 
the case better. I'm now thinking pretty highly about an inflammatory condition or an autoimmune condition with the preceding illness and with the history of producing autoantibodies in the past. Right. And now that the level has moved up, so it seems like there's some cranial nerve or brainstem uh, involvement. And that suggests that this is multifocal. So you have arms, legs, and cranial nerve or uh, brainstem involvement. Uh, and that would fit with a, uh, a multiple nerve involvement or multiple radicular nerve or a multi-polyradiculo neuropathy uh, type of picture. Uh, two things I'd like to know, though, Chris, is one, did she have any autonomic uh, symptoms, uh, orthostatic hypotension, or difficulties with urine or bowel function, and the other, any respiratory difficulties. Could she speak a full sentence without uh, taking a, having to take a breath? Was she short of breath at all? She denied any autonomic symptoms. She had no orthostasis. As far as respiratory symptoms, um, she was setting well in room air, and as part of the exam, our resident did ask her to count out loud in a single breath, and she was able to get to 45. So I'll just interject that with uh, weakness of the diaphragm or when uh, dyspnea is part of a neuromuscular syndrome, many times the oxygen saturation will not drop early on. It's late because there's no problem with the AA gradient and with uh, oxygen transport in the lung. It's a problem of movement of air. And so it's more important to look at things like vital capacity and myths, and which um, you did at the bedside, uh, obviously, uh, with counting. Okay, so give us the salient features of, uh, of the uh, examination and start with the vital signs, please. Sure. So her vital signs were normal. She had a temperature of 98.1. Her pulse was 82. Respiratory rate was 16. Blood pressure of 101 over 66. She was setting 99% on room air at the time that uh, she was seen by a resident. Uh, as far as her medical exam, everything was completely normal other than there was documented mild voice hoarseness. The mental status exam was normal. Cranial nerves were all completely intact, in particular cranial nerves 9 and 10. Uh, the tongue uvula, the palate was midline, the palate raised uh, equally. Um, there was no tongue fasciculations, atrophy, or weakness of the tongue. And her extraocular movements, pupils were all within normal limits. As far as the motor exam, uh, tone and bulk were intact. Uh, she had no pronator drift. As far as her direct confrontational testing, uh, she did have kind of diffuse weakness, but the pattern was kind of asymmetric. The right side was slightly weaker than the left. Um, so it was documented that her right upper extremity was four to four plus throughout and that the left was really intact at five. The hip flexor on the right was documented as a three only. The left was a four. The knee flexors and extenders were fours on the right and four pluses on the left. And plantar flexion and dorsiflexion was documented as a four bilaterally. As far as um, additional exam maneuvers from a motor perspective, there was no ptosis, no double vision on pr prolonged upgaze and no ptosis that came from prolonged upgaze. Um, as I mentioned, the breath count was 45 in one particular breath. Fatigability was not present in shoulder abduction, which was tested bilaterally. Her sensation was intact throughout, um, other than there was documented notable uh, mild vibratory sense impairment in the toes, but light touch was intact. The patient again, was complaining mostly of tingling feeling and not so much loss of sensation. Uh, finger to nose was intact bilaterally, as was heel to shin. She had no abnormal movements. Uh, her gait, 
again, as I think the husband kind of described, the resident noted that she had some difficulty rising from a, from a seated to a standing position, but that when she was able to actually ambulate, she was ambulating it with a normal gait, but she was unable to do tandem um, given her weakness. Um, and then finally her reflexes. So she had bilateral knee replacements. So the patellar reflexes were documented as trace. She had one plus reflexes throughout the upper extremities, but the resident was unable to elicit Achilles reflexes bilaterally. In my experience, most people with, with knee replacement surgery don't, don't have significant uh, uh, problems with their uh, knee reflexes, their mm -hmm. knee jerks. Okay, uh, just let me ask, there was, there was no sensory level that you were able to determine? There was not, no. Okay. No percussion tenderness over the spine. There was no tenderness, no. So, so I'm getting the sense that there's uh, weakness, more so in the legs and the arms, were slightly asymmetric, somewhat more proximal than distal, and the reflexes generally appear to be uh, depressed. Okay, so, so what, what do you think of that picture, Lindsay? I think it could still be consistent with a Guillain-Bray type syn syndrome, but I also... How about the localization? It's more proximal, so I would think a myositis could be on the differential as well. So Guillain-Barre is a polyradiculoneuropathy, uh, and there are two forms, obviously, but the more common form is the demyelinating form. Uh, most peripheral neuropathies, polyneuropathies, uh, when they're axonal, have a distal greater than proximal gradient. Uh, that's because they're dependent on uh, metabolism of the nerves. And so the distal portions of the nerves are the watersheds and they're the ones that are first affected. But with demyelinating neuropathies, they affect the uh, Schwann cells. And the Schwann cells are located all up and down the entire peripheral nerve. And they're affected in a random fashion. So you're just as likely to get proximal muscle weakness as distal muscle weakness. Uh, and in addition, because the nerve roots are, are affected heavily, uh, there tends to be a proximal predominance of proximal weakness, uh, early on at least, in uh, acute uh, demyelinating polyneuropathy. So uh, I still think that's, that's consistent with your, your, always go with your initial intuition, and I think your um, uh, sense that the reflexes would be important, I also feel are probably important. And I would have to go uh, with a demyelinating syndrome, probably a peripheral polyneuropathy, uh, acute demyelinating polyneuropathy as the most likely. Transverse myelitis becomes less likely, but that's also a demyelinating syndrome. But in the, the um, absence of a sensory level, the pattern of how this involved uh, and the absence of autonomic dysfunction, I think it feels less likely. Um, what, what would you anticipate as, as the initial testing to be done? There are a few antibodies you would want to rule out, but then you would also want to do an EMG, possibly to document the, the lack of F reflex or, you know, confirm your diagnosis. But otherwise, I would say it's mostly a clinical diagnosis and I would proceed with IVIG treatment. All right. Well, I think you, you probably uh, want a little bit more information first. Whenever you have a case like this where there's the potential of a myelopathy and someone who's immunosuppressed, so they may be susceptible to infection or to uh, neoplasm, to lymphoproliferative disorders, I don't know how long she's been immunosuppressed, you certainly want to clear the spine, especially if you're anticipating doing a spinal tap. 
uh, to get more information. Uh, so clearing the spine with uh, MR imaging, uh, I think would be on the top of my list, as well as routine uh, labs just to make sure uh, to make sure there's no other systemic process like an infection. You want to check the white blood count. So I assume, Chris, that she had MR imaging of the spine? She did, yes. So a lumbar puncture okay. is actually done first. Okay. What would be the danger if, if she had a epidural compressive spinal cord uh, process going on and doing lumbar puncture before imaging her? So, I mean, dependent on where that collection was, but obviously it's a, a high pressure situation. So you could get some sort of spinal cord herniation, or obviously if she has like a epidural abscess or something, you could potentially go through it too, depending on where it was. Although I think, again, most of her symptoms being lower extremity and upper extremity, if there was one, it would be more up in the C-spine. Yeah. So if you had a uh, partial block due to an epidural compressive process, when you take spinal fluid out from the lumbar compartment, you're lowering the pressure and that you may cause a partial block to become a complete block. But I guess there wasn't a lot of worry. There wasn't back pain. There wasn't percussion tenderness. There wasn't a level about a compressive process. So what did the scan show? So the MRI total spine was actually normal other than a few mild degenerative changes. She had no uh, significant central canal stenosis um, and no significant neuroforaminal stenosis. Yeah. There was multi-level degenerative changes consistent with her age, but nothing that impinged the cord. And Chris, and, was that scan uh, done with contrast? It was, yes. Was there any enhancement seen of the nerve roots? There was not. Okay, so that's a good point. So with uh, demyelinating, uh, acute demyelinating polyneuropathies, because it's an inflammatory process, uh, you may see inflammation around the nerve roots. Uh, and that inflammation also is, is in part responsible for the elevated protein that's often seen in these syndromes because you get breakdown of the blood-brain barrier and a lot of protein leaks out around the inflamed nerve roots into the uh, CSF. So as Lindsay mentioned, uh, CSF analysis is important for two reasons. One, to uh, ensure that she doesn't have an infection. And the other is to see what the protein, uh, if the protein is uh, elevated. She had a spinal tap. She did, yes. So her CSF, so in tube four, there was three nucleated cells. And of those, there were 80% lymphocytes. Um, and her protein was 66.2 with a glucose of 56. Okay. And her serum glucose that matched that time was 90. All right. So, so the protein is, uh, is uh, normal to possibly modestly elevated, which is not unusual in an older person or someone with diabetes. Certainly, they get a mild elevations in the uh, protein. So there's not uh, really any inflammation uh, that we can uh, detect in the spinal cord. So that's um, a little bit puzzling. Uh, so um, what what did the um, uh, what were the next steps taken? As I mentioned in her history, she had a history of being immunosuppressed on this uh, relatively new medication, which I had to look up as well because I was unsure about what the actual mechanism of action was. So just so uh, everyone knows, the medication, as I mentioned, was called Bolatacept. And Bolatacept is a, so it's a CTLA-4 immunoglobulin. It basically, uh, its mechanism of action is that it uh, binds to CD80 on antigen-presenting cells, which decreases antigen presentation, so decreases, um, obviously, the reactions of the immune system. And so in discussion with the transplant team, uh, the assumption was made that she did actually have Guillain-Barre syndrome, despite the relatively modest 
increase in her protein, particularly because she was relatively immunosuppressed. However, the other consideration besides this being related to the uh, bilatisept, um, which does have, by the way, a 10% risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, in its uh, postclinical monitoring um, per up-to-date. The other consideration was that the patient actually had uh, tested CMV negative in her pre-transplant evaluation, but the kidney that she received was actually CMV positive. Um, and so the transplant mm. team was also concerned about her CMV status and whether or not that could have been related to um, her neurologic syndrome. So the plan of care was to treat her clinically as though she had uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, to test her for CMV with a quantitative CMV viremic load, and then make a decision about whether further uh, bilatisept would be given based on whether or not there was uh, one clinical improvement with IVIG, and then two, whether there was presence of CMV that could you know, be the, the culprit for her clinical syndrome. So, so was the, the clinical suspicion uh, tested with uh, neurodiagnostic studies? Yeah, so unfortunately, this case was, uh, this lady was inpatient during the recent uh, COVID outbreak. So in terms of arranging for an inpatient EMG, it was unfortunately not able to be done just because, you know, she was in the hospital. And particularly because she was immunocompromised, they wanted to limit exposure to providers as much as possible, particularly given, uh, you know, the COVID pandemic at this time. So she was treated with IVIG or uh, plasma exchange? She was treated with IVIG, so she got the standard uh, 0.4 grams per kilogram per day over five days. She actually did quite well, so she did get those five days of IVIG and did actually slowly remit. Her sensory symptoms, interestingly, resolved after 24 hours of IVIG, um, and her strength continually improved to the point where at the time that she was uh, finished with IVIG, she was documented as having four plus strength in all four of her extremities in all what? groups. That's a rather remarkable quick improvement. Yeah, I, I find it uh, quite interesting that a drug that can suppress inflammation and press uh, the immune system uh, can also cause a uh, autoimmune demyelinating neuropathy at the same time. It's a, it's a sort of interesting concept. To round things out, not to forget though, when you see someone in this setting, there are also some other things you should check. There are some metabolic uh, issues that may mimic uh, Guillain-Barre uh, syndromes like B12 deficiency, like copper deficiency, for instance, and uh, those things uh, should be checked. Uh, there's no uh, other uh, suggestion of toxin exposure, but there are some toxins that can uh, mimic uh, a Guillain-Barre picture as well. But uh, very, very interesting. Very interesting. So, Jeff, let me ask you: Will her uh, electrodiagnostic studies normalize, or if we do uh, nerve conduction uh, studies a couple of weeks out, will they still be abnormal if she truly had uh, a demyelinating neuropathy? It's an interesting case, uh, mainly because of how quickly she recovered. You know, in, in classic Guillain-Barre syndrome, we don't think of IVIG as a immediate cure, but more as something that stops the damage and then allows the patient to heal naturally. So this rapid turnaround almost suggests that very little structural damage had been done to the myelin, and perhaps she was caught early on with inflammation. You can sometimes see these short-lasting effects when the inflammation is targeted at the nodes of Ranvier, but actually has not done any structural damage to the myelin. So I would actually be very curious to see her EMG. I think it's sort of a coin toss as to whether you would find any abnormalities or not just based on her clinical course. So Chris, what did they do with her immunosuppression? 
the day after IVIG was started, her CMV quantitative load did come back actually at a five log, which is exceedingly high. So she had uh, over 2 million copies of CMV in her serum. So in addition to the IVIG, she was actually started on Fuscarnet um, for treatment of potential CMV. So it was actually started at the same time. And so as I think Jeff brought up, which is a good point, and, and you mentioned, Dr. Werdiger, too, that there was a relative rapid improvement. And so it was unclear whether potentially this was kind of a CMV-induced uh, presentation because her CMV viral load actually came down quite quickly. It was checked daily per infectious disease. And by the time she had been on Fuscarnet for four days, her CMV viral load had fallen to 73,000, which goes from a five log to about a three and a half log, which is a significant decrease. Did they withhold the immunosuppressant? So the bladicept is actually a monthly infusion. So she had received okay. the bladicept actually two days before she presented to the ED. So it was held in the sense that it was not redosed, you know, obviously during this acute attack, but actually uh, she was discharged from the hospital and the transplant doctors are relatively convinced that this was CMV related, particularly given the rapid improvement, which as we, we commented in our notes, would be a little atypical for a traditional GBS uh, that responded to IVIG. So they are actually planning on redosing her with bladicept because she's really not able to tolerate any other immunosuppression. She failed both mycophenolate and tacrolimus. Yeah. So, so I guess the question is, is uh, when you see Guillain-Barre in the setting of CMV, is this uh, a direct cause of infection or is this a post-infectious uh, demyelinating syndrome? And I don't know the answer to that. No, I don't know of any data about this. We could do some looking, but the definitive way to find out would be a nerve biopsy in a patient with a syndrome like this to see if what the actual pathology was at the level of the nerve. All right, everybody, thanks. That was a great case. Thanks, Dr. Werdiger, for your wisdom. Uh, thanks, Chris, for presenting. And thanks, Lindsay, for your participation, as always. We look forward to having you back for the next Neurology Morning Report podcast. See you soon, everyone.